Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. You know what time it is? Time to go visit Catalan at Bridge 4. Time, time for the episode. Bridge 4, Stormlight Archives, Episode 2. We're going to do a different... Last week you guys heard we went chapter by chapter. I didn't really like the outcome of that one. Not that it was a bad episode, it was just a um, logistically didn't allow for the side quests as well as what we're going to do today, which is we're going to shove together characters and their point of view chapters into a single conversation segment, and that I think will allow us the the normal side quest rundown that we all know and love. So thanks for bearing with us in testing out new formats. Anyway... We'll get into that in a few. Slava, how you doing? How was your week? Dude, the easygoing cat wrangling of last week is over. The cats got bigger and feral this week. It was a pretty heavy week. I had two products that were supposed to go out next week, but they were forced through to go out yesterday. Woof. Before close of day. Woof. So it was a, it was a big woof. I made it through. We're here. <laughs> recording. What about you? I, uh... More prep for the trade show, which is good, but you know, you you think you get a full list of stuff done every week, and then you look at your list and you're like, man, there's a there's a lot more to go. In other news, in tandem with the trade show prep, I called Yeti. You know the um the thermoses, the really nice looking things that people give away as swag. Over, we're giving mm-hmm. that away as swag for some of our stuff. And I call Yeti corporate up and I'm like, hey, can I get a quote? I realized uh, I didn't understand how long your lead time was. And she's talking to me. She's like, oh, sorry about the dogs. And I go, oh, no, that's, that's fine. Whatever. You know, work from home. It's cool. And then she starts telling me the story how they gave away. They have four dogs. They gave away one to some people down the street, wherever they live. I don't, I don't actually know. And then her husband was taking one of their dogs for a walk and they saw one of those people shooting the dog with a pellet gun and i was like what what Good and Lord. she's like yeah we he we gave them their money back we just took the dog back like that's not what we were signing up for and i was like yeah that's i don't care who you are if you have to hurt animals and this will be relevant very shortly in the episode but um if you have to hurt animals you need to talk to somebody i mean we saw that in toy story with sid you know the the broken toys if you do that, you have some some deeply seated uh, soul gunk that needs to be dealt with. Not an uncommon thing for humans, but uh, should definitely sort that out. You know, it's it's not justified to to shoot an animal for no reason. You know, if they're attacking your kid or something, okay. Like there are there are circumstances in which like hurting an animal makes sense because that you got to protect someone. Fine, but. Uh, not not for no reason. Like and then she told me that those people have twenty dogs. And I was like, why would you I didn't say this, I'm trying to get my quote, right? Like, but why would you give another dog to a family that has twenty dogs? 
It all sounds stupid. They all sound stupid. Yeah, it a lot of opinions on that. But um overall a reasonable week. I uh I passed another kidney stone yesterday. That was a good time. Oh, I bet. Fun times. Yeah, just before my gym workout. And I was like, Wow, this sucks. But here we are. So I gotta get back on my diet. Also yeah, sucks. getting old isn't for sissies, man. Yeah, it's uh, you know, what do they say? You either make time for your health today, or your health makes you. No, there's a better way. There's like a saying: you either like inconvenience yourself now with making you know good health choices, or you literally pay out the end later about it, and it's a lot. It's a lot. But let's dive in to the Stormlight Archives. And see how our friends are doing over on Roshar. Kaladin, Adolin, Dalinar. I had to scold Slava this week because he sent me one meme. One Stormlight Archive meme. And he's like, I'm looking forward to this. And I said, you're not allowed to look at memes anymore. I've banned you. He's like, why? I was like, because there's too many. There's there's like 20 books in the Cosmere. You're literally going to ruin things for yourself that are going to happen. And I, I took a, I like paid attention to the meme that he sent me. And I was like, that's from book two. Because he's like, oh, I'm looking forward to this. And I said, that's from book two. You can't, this is why you can't look at memes. This is why you're not allowed to look at memes. You're not allowed to read about the memes. Nothing. Not until you're like seven books deep. Well, here's the thing. For some of this stuff, I am more interested in knowing even a spoiler, because then it helps me enjoy whatever I'm reading currently. I will get so curious as to what's going on and why this thing is happening, and I reserved myself because we're doing this project a certain way, so I didn't go as far as I normally would, but there are some things that I will research because otherwise I'm not enjoying what I'm reading. I'm, I'm getting sidetracked thinking, what the hell is going on here? And until I know what the hell's going on here, whatever that little thing may be, I'm not happy. Now, that meme thing is a separate issue, but <laughs> as far a, as... A, it's not a separate issue. It literally falls into what you just described. Well, I didn't search for the meme to find anything out. That was just something that came across my mm-hmm. algorithm because of the other stuff I'm researching for Cosmere. Mm-hmm. So that's that. I stand by my deeds. Mm-hmm. Unashamed. Fair enough. Well, okay. So... We read in this section three interludes and then up to chapter 17. And I'm going to run you through a brief synopsis of what takes place in those things, and then we'll dive into the interludes first. So we had three interludes. Now, one of my questions for you, Slava, is going to be, what did you think about being pulled out of the story for the interludes? So we have three interludes that focus around three different characters that tell us three different things. The first one is about Ishik, and there's a group of people who are looking for a man named Hoyd. This is where I pause and I smile at the audience who've read the Cosmere before. Anyway, uh, Ishik is a fisherman in the Pure Lake, which is also relevant to things, but we don't know that, Slava. We don't know that because you haven't read enough of the Cosmere yet, but that's okay. Um, So fun, just fun meeting other people in the world, we think it's in the world, that are up to things, right? And then interlude two is about Nanbalat, which is Shallan's brother. And we, he is this person that they gave the dogs to. 
they 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 gave the dog to and then he's torturing it for his own makeshift therapy which we'll dive into in a second and then the third interlude we get to see Zeth Sansan Valano and his oath stone and what that entails and some questions so we will stop there and focus on the interludes first question over to you Slava how was it reading the book and then being pulled out to take a short three story break they're they're you know quips or or short scenes of characters right right well i think it's going to be the same answer as i gave last episode when you when we talked about some of the assumptions i was making that which i realized were wrong we'll get to that later in the first part of the book thinking that maybe they're jumping timelines and you asked me how I felt about that, and I said, I don't mind at all. It doesn't confuse me. It doesn't bother me. Uh, same thing here. I think taking a little break from the main story and you know, getting these three vignettes, if you will, short vignettes. That's a good way to describe them. Yep. So getting a little glimpse into Shalon's brother's life and then Seth revisiting him. That was interesting because now I want to know what happened after he killed the king, right? And then the Ishik and the three travelers, they're probably world hoppers. Brandon Sanderson probably wants me to pay attention here. That That's the thing that I, we just discussed where I said I stood by my actions. I want to know more why these guys... You're the worst. Seemingly, I know, I, you love me. Seemingly from different parts of the world or different parts of the Cosmere, why these guys are named going after a guy named Hoyd, who I didn't read anything about, because like I said, I want to stay true, you know, to kind of the parameters of the project, so I don't ruin or spoil everything, but and give me enough so I can keep my interest going, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. all that to say, I enjoyed the vignettes. I thought they were cool, because they got me thinking, well, now, how does this tie in? Like, who's this guy, Hoyd, that they're, these three are searching for? Yeah, who do you think Hoyd is? Why do these guys care about this person? Uh, broad stroke assumptions. Let's go, Mister Cheating and Reading Ahead. You're gonna ruin parts of the book for yourself if you do that. I'm scolding you in front of all the people. Yeah, and I'm saying, and they support like a me. petulant child. I'm telling you, no, because it, getting these little glimpses into who these people are keeps my interest. And I'm not saying that if I didn't know it all, if Coppermine.net didn't exist, that I would throw this book to the side. But my interest just is just too strong. Who's Hoyd? Who's Hoyd? Who's why do Hoyd? these foreigners, also known as world hoppers, because you cheated, why do these world hoppers want to find Hoyd? Because he did something bad. Wow. Uh, that's it. Thanks for coming to the podcast. It's over. We've we've uncovered all the secrets. So I read enough to understand these people are from different parts of the Cosmere, probably, uh-huh. and that they're searching, that they're searching. For a guy named Hoyd, who I know nothing about, but if we're making assumptions, getting back to the you, the question you posed, is he probably did something bad, or he possesses some sort of thing, an object, uh, knowledge, that these men want? That's good drama, right? So there's this book that I bought when I was living in New York from Strands, and it's a book about directing, and it did a really wonderful job at a... Uh, a piece of directorial advice that helps that that that's holds such brevity but also such wisdom and it said every story 
every story ever told is character A wants something from character B. And either they get it or they don't. And then blank. So you're not wrong, but uh, it's just a real broad stroke like, yeah, this is how stories work. Before we move on from Ishik, and then you can give me your little retort, what do you think about the religion that Ishik is a part of? I found it, it the, when I first listened to it the first time and just kind of went in one ear and out the other. But then when I went back to read it, because I have the audiobook and the Kindle book, when I went back to read it before the podcast, I was like, they said they have this religion where they have apparently two gods, right? And one of them you pretend to worship, but you really worship the other one. Yep. With fish. With fish. So I guess I don't have a any sort of broad assumption or any... Anything more than that question is like, what and why? Well, like I want to kind of get into the, the the meat of it if we're gonna discuss this religion, but by the three lines that Brandon Sanderson gives us, and this is something interesting that he does that I noticed, he just sort of assumes that either you know enough about the Cosmere or you're gonna accept it as here it is, this is what's going on in the Cosmere, or you're you're just there along for the ride, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's that's he doesn't uh, explain a lot. So I think here I don't right. think it's a throwaway line that right, he's just right. like ah, but I I don't think we have enough to for me to make any any sort of assumption. It's just a religion where there's one god that's almost a throwaway god and the other god who's the real god and fish are involved. <laughs> fish are involved. More fish in the sea. More fish in the pure lake. Uh. Yes. So this is one of those moments where Sanderson is building the world by giving us a glimpse in a different part of the world first, giving us a glimpse of so many different things. He's These people in this region of Roshar hold a religion where there's two gods where you trick one god into thinking you're worshiping them versus worshiping the other one. You have fish that can help predict the future and cure aches and joints. and uh, it's just he's giving you a glimpse into their culture, and then that's it. And yes, there's more to it. We could get into it. There's not enough in this section, which is why people put the copper mine together, so that together they can un- uncover all of the secrets and the riddles and do feed into what I'm scolding you for, because we all do it. Cosmerians, which is what I'm going to call us, we all go, oh, you know, what about this? What about that? And we start to look. And then we go, oh, well, I didn't know that and that was connected, which is fun. But this is our center. Uh, this is our hub. And the name of the domain is actually entirely relevant, but it's from a different series called Mistborn, which we'll probably get into at some point. Copper Mines. But um, yeah, so just curious on your initial thoughts. We're not going to dive into the religion itself because there's not enough to go on at this point. And... You had one last comment before we move to Nambalat. If I did, I lost it. But, yeah, if I did, I lost it. Fair enough. Um, the three foreigners, that was the most interesting to me. Um, the story of Ishik and him, uh, him fishing and then 
talking to the waitress or the the barmaid or the owner, whoever she is. <laughs> soon to be married. Soon to be married. As we went on this side quest from Brandon Sanderson, this little vignette, what piqued my interest was the three foreigners, the three world hoppers. As soon as that as soon as that was introduced, I was no longer interested that much in Ishik or his religion or of course, his yeah. on again, off again relationship with the barmaid. <laughs> or whoever she is, the owner, the barmaid, the doesn't matter. So that I guess that's it. That was my last comment. Like I now I'm hooked for these three world hoppers, Hoyd, and how they're all connected to either um the Light Eyes, I, I'm going to butcher everybody's name because I'm, I'm so horrible at names. So either the royalty that's fighting the Prashendi. High how, princess. Maybe, yeah, maybe he's connected to Calvin somehow. Maybe he's he's going to be connected to Shalon and Jasna. So that's mm-hmm. what that's where I'm going to hook for. I'm like, I want to know where the, who this Hoyt is and why these three, who they are, first of all, and why these three specifically are searching for him. It's taking all my willpower to not talk about Hoyd right now, and all the Cosmerians will understand why. Anyway, we'll move on. Uh, so tell me about how you abuse animals, non-Balat. Well, I don't abuse animals. I abuse people who abuse animals. And as we get into Balad Devar's little uh, vignette, that mm, strange little fellow with the problems, with many problems, yeah, so in his... So he has resentment towards Shalon. Yep. At the same time, he has resentment towards himself. There's also this line where he's like, I got out normal when he's complaining about Shalon. And you're like... And then it says he rips off a leg from a living crab. Like, I don't think that that word means what you think it means, bud. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Shalon draws pictures. Yeah. yeah. She's, <laughs> she's a lot more normal far as we can tell from whatever happened in their past than yeah. um ripping you know crushing animals and and abusing them for your own uh yeah there's whatever a interesting line hold on let me uh, let me bring it up it's just uh, here it is not balat like killing things not people never people but animals those he could kill particularly little ones he wasn't sure why it made him feel better. It <laughs> simply did. Oof. And I was like, uh, oh, excuse me? <laughs> like, what the shit is wrong with you? You remember how you were talking about Stephen King? And I don't know if we talked about this in a prelude where we were just chatting before an episode, but you talked about how you sometimes will write characters that people have a disgust reaction to because Mm -hmm. that's where the character is and i think that that shows good writing that you can write something that's like yeah this is this is a really sick human whether they're a murderer or a psychopath or an animal abuser who clearly has extra issues but you know having disgust when you read a character like that shows kind of where you're at reveals something about you but it also reveals something about the the level of quality in the author if they can write that well uh feel free to tie it back into stephen king for me because i don't remember exactly what you said before but remind us oh yeah yeah for sure i think it was a prelude 
to an episode of then we touched it briefly when we did Omni's last case. And that sounds right. Taking taking the story wherever it goes, right? So the the conversation was about what's the connection with the author to the the character he's writing. That was kind of the I don't want to say that was the nucleus of the conversation, but that was like part of it. Yeah. And so if the story requires a bad guy and you're writing this bad guy and you're tr- and you're a good writer, you're trying to avoid cliches and tropes to the, your best ability. As a writer, you know that non-balot, let's let's use Sanderson as an example, I'm just going to get into Sanderson's head and hypothetic, a hypo- make up a hypothetical to prove my point. You know your characters. You know Shalon, you know her brothers, you know the father, what he did. And it makes sense. The story takes you in a certain direction. That's the way King says it. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but the way King says it. And Nambalat, it makes sense that he's an animal-torturing piece of human garbage. In our society today, we get very sensitive about a lot of things. And I don't want to make this about political correctness or anything. But we get very sensitive, and we're, we're always looking for how to clean things up and make them less bristly and less offensive, where sometimes it's good to look at unabashed evil. Why is that? It guides you. It, it kind of shakes you awake. Tell me you're a Sith without telling me you're a Sith. Sith deals in, Sith deal in absolutes. Yeah. The evil so guides you. It should, it should guide you in the sense where, you know, it's a good reminder that we all have a propensity towards evil. And if you have a visceral reaction to evil being perpetrated, whether it's in real life or in a book, if there's a reaction that is testament to the fact that you're more than a meat bag on a rock flying through space, right? Because without objective good, you can never define what is evil. Yeah, the juxtaposition is important. And and that's kind of gets to the comment that I had a little bit ago where it tells something about the reader. If you look at Nonbalat as he's like, I'm normal, rips a leg off a crab. I like to hurt animals. And you're like, bruh, something's wrong with you, man. Like, nah, yeah. dog. It's not like he's in this malaise, bleary-eyed and, you know, like a drone hurting an animal. He's hurting them. He's contemplating the things of life. He's thinking about his sister. He pulls off a leg. She loves me not. She loves me. But, you know, like, that takes what a new gross. What are you doing, man? Well, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be incestuous. I'm just saying he, he resents her, that he, but he feels sorry for her. He feels shame that he couldn't help her. He feels afraid for her because he let her go and she's young and timid and it, it should have been him. Yeah. And at the same time, he's like, but whatever. She kind of sucks, I guess. Yeah, that's that's non-balot in a, in a nutshell. We'll learn more as the book goes on about non-balot, their family, what they owe people, debts-wise, and what happened to them back in the day. Let's move on to our good friend and assassin who seems deeply conflicted throughout everything we've read of him so far, Zeth Sansan Volano, who in this interlude is working for some mine workers and just like sits there and kind of just does 
obscure things. I mean, outside of cutting his own arm because he was ordered to. Uh, but yeah, that's a that's a weird freaking thing because I understand being bound to somebody, but he seems like a like a battered victim here. He he, he does a little bit, but he's too he's too clear headed, right? I mean, that's that's the way that I read it. He's very clear-headed about his actions. He's like, nope, I'm doing this thing. And so he's so bound to his value system for whatever happened to lead him into this indentured servitude with the Oath Stone and how he is, uh, self-aggrandizing is not right, how he's self, what am I looking for here? He's he, he, he condemns himself, right? Where he's like, I'm truthless. I'm this, you know, these negative things, this negative self-talk uh, based on whatever happened in his past. Truthless. What does that mean besides the obvious in our in our uh, world and yeah, according yeah, to the dictionary? Great question. Like, what does it mean? Rafo. No, see, that, that doesn't. I can't. I can't. So here's the thing, Slava. If I answer every question that you ask that is going to be answered later, I should just not have you read the books because there's some some. There's still some nuance to the details of what makes him truthless. And and the reason that I'm I'm so stuck in the mud on this perspective is because there's something about walking the journey out with the character that makes it more tangible, more visceral for us to live, which we'll get into with Kaladin here shortly, that you don't get if you just collect the knowledge. Uh I was I was talking with my girlfriend uh she's reading this book for a class that she's in about the enneagram and she's like i don't want to read the stories about these people that she's using the author is using as an example i want just the information and i said well that's how we transfer information we tell stories we now i read the same book i did it in audiobook and she was annoyed at me because i finished it super quickly because i listened to it at two times speed i didn't like the book the book wasn't that great uh, it was very, it was like a primer. It was like a pre-primer, like super light, didn't offer whatever. That's a, that's an irrelevant side quest. Anyway, so she, she said like, I don't want this information about these people. And I said, well, the reason it's there is because that's how we share information. That's how we connect. That's how we get context, right? Like if I just tell you, well, he's truthless means this because of his culture, blah, blah, blah. And you go, okay, cool. And like, yes, it'll add context, but there's revelations that I had when I read the first time that um, I think are moments that I don't want you to miss, which is why I am telling you, like, don't look at memes. Don't look at this stuff because they're oh, Slava. You you'll understand like we get we get some of this book. We I promise you we get some of this book. But there are moments that happen when you read The Way of Kings that you're like, ah. Uh, shit i'm in i've got to read every book he's written like uh, there's just too many questions uh these moments are too good like they in they evoke pure emotion from yourself from reading them i think we're we're at an impasse and i'm not gonna let it ruin the project i'm not gonna like you know be uh, well i hope not we've known each other for almost 20 years at this point where we're at an impasse for me if i know the short bit a short bit of context of what truthless means Uh uh-huh that won't ruin the revelation later. And I say that just because of sometimes if it comes up on my feed, I will 
listened to 10,000 hours of all the interviews, of all the actors, of all the directors, and how they made it and where they got their ideas, and then I'll watch a movie. So for me, knowing or, I mean, fine, I'm happy with not knowing right now, but for me, knowing the context, the context, excuse me, yeah, of what truthless means will not ruin any revelation. Okay. All right. Here's what future. I'll give you. Here's what I'll give you. Truthless is the lowest social class among the people of Shinovar, which Zeth is from. And the underlining meaning of the word truthless is similar to the word liar, but it's not quite the same. Makes me feel so much better. You have itched. A, you have scratched an itch. I don't and see, that doesn't touch give me anything. That part of your body. See, that doesn't give me anything except the meaning of the word truthless. But Zeth is in an interesting predicament here. He is bound to another master, right? The this guy who named Took, who is, as you said, he's part of a some miners. He might not be a miner, but they're drinking with miners. Yes, is that correct? Yeah. Yes. So somebody took his oath stone, and now they get to boss him around because he's truthless. And in his culture, if you're you're truthless and you're bound to an oath stone, you have to do everything that your master requires. And we learn that he's not allowed to take his own life, but he'll do everything else to absurd levels because the guy tells him to cut his arm and he does it. Yes. Yep. Now, this is, and we see this in this section, he's really thrilled to be doing menial labor as yeah. opposed to killing people because he doesn't yep. want to kill people, which is an interesting character to write. You have this diehard assassin who doesn't want to kill people. Yeah. What's that about? If I'm going to make an assumption, irrespective of his place on the social strata of, of his culture there are some things that even the most obedient of sl obedient of slaves might not like to do and they do anyway then but you know here we have murder it's not like man i really hate washing out the stables <laughs> uh, but i want to do it because i'm uh, you know i'm the slave so irrespective of where he is on the social strata he does not like murder but because of his place on the social strata and because of his culture and maybe his character, you know, as in he himself, uh, not the literary term. Yeah. Because of his character, he's just going to do it. He's like, well, I got to I got to watch the stables or in his case, I I have to I have to kill this guy. And he's not happy about it. But something about the oath stone mm -hmm. binds him. Yeah. Do you think it's magical? Yes and no. D do I think it's like a a stone that uh, like mind forces control. him to do things against his will or mind control? I don't think so. I think it's him. Mm. I think it's uh, like filial piety almost, right? Like this obedience. D Unquestioning describe, obedience. Describe fieldy, field, fieldial piety to us. That's a that's a that wouldn't fly in the New York Times. Seventh graders don't know what that means. Well, filial piety is a word I I learned when I was uh, taking a Chinese history course. Is and a so, career turn? Yeah. Um, so what it means is it's obedience and un I don't want to I don't want to say unquestioning, but definitely definitely takes that shape just because of the nature of it. Filial piety is a sense of obligation a sense of duty and obedience. Duty to, is a good word. Obedience to 
your parents, your family, society, the community. In the, that's in the context that it was used in this Chinese history course. So if your mother tells you, no, you're not marrying this guy, you're marrying this guy because it's good for the family, filial piety will require you to obey your mother, your father, yeah, your family, because who are you? Well, you're the third daughter of a Chinese farmer, and you will do as you're told, because that's what your immediate family requires, that's what your value system requires, and that's what the general kind of a world you find yourself in. That's the modus operandi. Yeah. That's how you do it. So I think duty is a good way to describe it, right? And I would also say that along with duty, there's a sense of honor from your culture. And that's something we're going to see a lot of in this book on Roshar is this ideal of duty and honor and living out your culture regardless of where you are. So duty is something that I believe is lacking in today's world that we could use more of. Duty would be described as a task, service, or function that arises from one's position. A moral or legal obligation, a responsibility. So... Responsibility is another good word. Mm. In this case, it's a more intangible thing. Like this is you're responsible not only for yourself, but for others around you. And your response to the expectations, the obligations, the duties, that is part and parcel of the whole thing. It's one cohesive package. It's not dissected like it is in our culture right now. Right. You, you, you understand your role in the community your role in your position, and your role in responsibility in those things as they ebb and flow, which is a great transition into our next point of view, folks, in these next three chapters, 12, 13, and 15, with Adolin, Dalinar, and Elikar, Colin. Right. So can I just say one thing before we move on? So to answer your question more fully in light of what we just said, is it magic, the Oathstone? Yes, in a sense that it possesses certain powers or because of the cultic practices of the people who, I don't want to say worship it, but the cultic practices in the culture where it is, I think it holds certain sway over people. It it, it in itself might have magical properties, just like some of the swords have and the shards and the plates, but I don't think it's mind-controlling Zeth. Mm-hmm. I think Zeth... Mm-hmm is bound to his duties. Mm-hmm. And that, that that comes out in just the way he talks about it. So, 12, 13, and 15, we're looking at Dalinar, Adolin, Elokar, Sadius. They're on a they're on a hunt at the start of this. We For a chasm fiend. A chasm fiend, yes. To get the gem hearts, which are basically the objects inside of these beasts that they then use to soul cast. And they're also kind of a form of money, if you will. Uh, they hold they hold great value. And Adolin is upset about Dalinar's increasingly strange behavior. Dalinar is busy thinking that his thinking about his brother's death, thinking about the questions he has, the visions he's having, his what ifs. He's torn between being this colored war vet who's now torn about the present and the future and what to do. He's vying in political intrigue and political unrest that's kind of forming because of his actions with the king and with Sadius. 
we see we meet Renarin. We more we learn more about Adolin's brother Renarin. We also see that Adolin is a young whippersnapper who can't seem to hold down a lady, which is that's something. I think we've we've all been there at some point. Maybe not as attractive. Adolin's like a very attractive man who's got great fashion sense. And one of the Dalinar is one of my favorite characters because he understands this sense of duty. He understands this sense of honor, responsibility. He gets it, right? Yeah. And we see that play out in his point of view where he's asking questions and we get to see how he feels about things that are going on and he's trying to hold everything together. I I think it's just fantastic. So Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, run, run me through your thoughts on... How do you feel about Elicar? How do you feel about Dalinar, Adolin, Sadius, this section where they're fighting a chasm fiend, and then Elicar's rising instability, his childlike behavior, even though he's king and he's a grown man, and his sheer paranoia? All right. Uh, a, lot, a lot to unpack there, but let's start. It's a lot to unpack, let's but start. I, you know, I'm trying to give a plot summary and then and then go Yeah, yeah, there. for sure. So let's start with the last and move backwards. So, Elokar, his impulsive behavior definitely stems from insecurities and, you know, trying to fill his father's role. He probably, to a degree, knows what other people think of him, even though they might respect him as king. They probably judge him against his father. So his impulsive behavior, his paranoia, his childlike behavior, his fear of being assassinated, his insecurities probably stem from filling his father, trying to fill his father's shoes. They're all for sure. They're all part of the same. Like, again, part and parcel. It, it, that's all of Elicar. All of them are tied together, and one probably feeds into another at some point because he's afraid of yeah. some assassin killing him in the night. But he's not afraid to charge through a, a valley where he might get shot by the Prashendi. These chasm fiends are massive. Right, they're these big, like crayfish type looking creatures. I'll send you a photo real quick, uh, but it's I've seen it. Did you look I it up? up? Did you look up the Kickstarter? No, I looked at Sanderson's site, but he has art. I looked at a bunch of art on Sanderson's sites. Okay, so you know how big a chasm feed yeah, is. Pretty pretty big. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Elicar's tough, right? Because at some point we've all been the runt who is trying to grow into something else. Mm-hmm. We've all been the person who's struggling behind at some point. Even people who are who are deemed as gifted, right? There's a point in time where they are still being beaten by other people that they, or they're, you know, they're close to and they have to sharpen their skills. And we choose to sit in that or we choose not to. And well it seems like Elokar has not taken the opportunity to choose to grow as a king into regal form and fashion. He is fulfilling the responsibilities of King in the sense that he's making laws and he's choosing things, but he, he isn't he isn't King. Right, and right? that kind of gets back to a note you dropped into chat. Where does authority come from? It's something that Kaladin says to Syl in the later chapter. So if you are to project, if you're going to take that, that phrase and apply it to here, if you are to be King and you are to lead, it's more than making rules. It's more than the dog and pony show that this hunt is to, you know. It's like Piggy from uh, Lord of the Flies. 
I have the conch. I've never seen Lord of the Flies. The conch, it's a book too. I've never the read. The conch represents. Yeah. Well, maybe we should read it. That's a that's a book that a lot of people have to read in primary school. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's more than just you know a show of um, a show of strength during a hunt, or it's more than making laws. It's more than the hunt itself, which is probably just more than just tradition for Elicar. It's probably a show of something. I think it's mentioned a little bit in the in the book. Real authority, real leadership is more than just a title and a fancy uniform. So true. So true. This is one of the things that we catch with the way that Sanderson writes is there's themes here. And each of the characters seems to come at the themes in their own angle. They all have their all going towards different outcomes. But the theme remains consistent, which is why I tell people like, if you want to understand how I view life better, you can see it in Kaladin and Dalinar deeply. Like this is how this is partly how I view life, which is this sense of duty, sense of responsibility for where I'm at versus where I feel called. And I want to give you a chance to comment on Adolin and Dalinar a little more because I really want to dive into Kaladin here in a second. So I love Dalinar. He's struggling right mm-hmm. now with his visions with his perceived instability and trusting himself right like you you live on a battlefield and then you start to get wiser in your old age because you're not on the battlefield anymore and you've moved up and then your brother dies and you're starting to ask questions because you're having these visions perceivably from the almighty yeah it's it's important to measure like is this true is this real and then he has to juggle his family relationships his king who's also his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, just yeah. just uh, any any thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, well, and also Sadius, who's supposedly your friend, but then not your friend. you got to fall out with him. You have the yeah. visions. You have, yeah, your son, one who's mo- a little bit more timid, one who's a lot less timid. So you have to balance them because they're in the army too. They have leadership roles. So you have to teach them. You have to balance the relationship between you and them. You got the king, um, and those visions, and then the responsibility—the responsibility he feels for his brother's death because he was drunk as his brother was being killed. Right. So, all that probably weighs heavily. And here you are, like you said, getting older, getting wiser, and you're torn because you have a sense of duty to the king. You have a sense of duty to your family. You have a sense of duty to do the right thing. And then you have this thing. I got to word things, phrase things better too. Um, You have this thing, this event following you around, which is the death of your king, your brother, who tells you to remember the most important things a man must say. I think it's a lot for Delaner. He is weighed down by all these things. And because he is a weathered veteran, he can probably deal with it better than most men. But it's clear in this chapter that he is burdened by his by where he is in life. And we're going to watch and see how it unfolds that he's able to carry or not carry that burden. There's some really interesting things that are going to happen with Dalinar. Looking forward to it. Mm, me too. All right, back to our boy. Kaladin, let's uh, home stretch here on the episode. So Kaladin, 14, 16, and 17. 
We see Kaladin waking up before the other bridgemen, resolved to fight for a better existence, even though his terrible circumstances are not allowing him to. In chapter 14, we have this question come up. Where does authority come from? Gaz is telling him, you can't do that, Bridgman. And he's like, they're my men. And he he bribes Gaz to give him uh, what he needs, what he and basically uh, also to keep him alive, which I think is a good move. Mm-hmm. But uh, Kaladin keeps his word, as far as we can tell. And he has this line. He's like, I don't know who I am either. And we're going to pause there a second because there's, there's more There's more to this. But what do you, from what you've seen of Kaladin as a character and his development so far, because we have gotten some flashbacks, which is one of the things that we see in this section as well about his past. How do you... How do you take this guy in so far, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Kaladin is prone to melancholy a little bit. thousand percent. And he has a sense of duty. Even as a king, he has a sense of duty. King? Oh, king. sorry. Even as a kid. Even as a kid. Oh, okay. Because we, have, we had a little uh, glimpse into his childhood. Not the chapter that covered him with his father in the surgery room, but this recent glimpse we have of him as a kid where he fights with a couple of boys and he has a, what is presumably like a, a little love interest, kid crush, Laurel. Yeah, Laurel. Laurel. Yeah. So we, that's where you get a glimpse of him and where I, you know, where I, where I get the sense he is definitely prone to melancholy and a sense of duty. Just the way he interacts with Laurel and how he talks with the boys and then how he feels, hey, this kid beat me, but I don't want to ever be beaten again. So my ego is not that big, but I I want to learn from this kid how to fight, right? It's this, and I think that that kind of response only comes from somebody who is duty bound instead of ego bound because he could have, done 10,000 things in that situation, but he decided that the best thing for him to do is never to get beaten again, and the guy who beat me, he's probably the best guy to teach me how to fight. Yeah. And that translates later in his life. The way he bribes Gaz is he knows the end goal is to save this man. He has a new resolve to save these men, to keep them alive, to keep them safe, and to live a life that is worthy despite being in horrible situ- a horrible situation. So he bribes gas, he starts working out, he starts showing by example to the bridgemen that despite the crappy situation they're in, they have to act honorably. And I see that thread from the little glimpse we get of him in the as a kid, even when he's arguing with his father about what's right. Remember? Like... W- Sometimes you have to kill to protect life. Like this little thread, whatever you want to call it, a value system that he as a kid developed and then, you know, it carried with him throughout adulthood. That's what I see of Kale. So, yes. And we see that he, well, from his life, we take note that he doesn't know who he is, but in his dire circumstances, and this is every man's story, not in the sense of like, every man as a gender, but every everyone's story um, is, is the phrase that I'm getting at here. 
regardless of where you stand in society, there will be times where circumstances come against you and it feels like nothing is, there's no hope on the horizon. Like being hopeless is as, as much as it pains me to say it, like part of the human journey at some point in your life, like hopelessness is probably going to knock on your door and sit there for a while. Mm -hmm. But in the midst of that, you can choose to work your way out of it and move toward a small goal. Does that mean that it's going to solve everything right there? No. Like, Kaladin's still a bridgeman. He still can't save his men. But you can either sit there and die, or you can try and at least do something. Right? It's a, it's a difficult place to be, but I, I think that Kaladin's story is very relatable yeah. to everyone. And it's so much... There's so much, uh, I don't want to say profitable. What's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Rewarding. I mean, I, so much more rewarding not to wallow in self-pity, but to choose to react, an honorable way to choose to react to your situation in a way, how to help me out here, understanding your situation, maybe even being brokenhearted about your situation or mad, frustrated at your situation, but despite those things, doing what is necessary to not even escape, not even escape, but just in the midst of the, the nonsense and the hardship, doing what you, you know, performing your duty, doing what is right. Right. W with your current position, there's always duty. Even if you're a burger flipper at McDonald's or something, there is a duty for your position. There's a duty for your family and friends. There's a duty that requires you to fulfill and frankly most people want to live comfortably and so they just kind of shrug off the bare minimum but then there's guys i don't know if you know who david goggins is but i know his story and i know who he is okay yeah both of his books are really good there i find them inspirational but then there are people and in his second book he talks about this there's a guy uh i want to say it was during ranger school where he and the he and the boys uh, who were more of the same age, were like, oh, yeah, talking stuff up, a lot of bravado. And then they see this guy, and I can't remember his name, but that guy was always ahead of them through the whole school. And he was like 15 years older than them or something like that. And he was only competing against himself. But he was he was the leader of that group, even though he never commanded those guys to do anything. He was literally just beating himself. His his goal, like Mario Kart, where you're like ghost racing yourself. Oh, can I beat my my you know best score? He was playing against himself on every obstacle course, in every class, in everything. That guy, what who was older than them, was just like, no, nah, I'm like, and he didn't hang out with those young the young guns. He was just like, no, nah, I'm here for me. Uh, and there's this line that Kaladin has, where we see him running the bridge it's chapter 17 and it's a bloody red sunset we see cal go and try and get supplies to save his men he can't afford them but it's time to go run the chasm for sadius to get the gem heart and they're running and he it's the final stretch they're running directly at the enemy and they're all probably going to die and he goes to the front and he says rock you're in the back and he goes what are you doing we're about to die. What are you doing, man? And uh, Kaladin's response. I I literally quote this to myself while I'm on runs because I don't enjoy running. I'm bridge leader. 
it's my privilege to run at the front. Mm-hmm. It's a good line. The thing is, running at the front is toward death. You're the first one in line to die, to get shot by arrows. You're the first one to take a hit. But that's leadership. That's servant leadership. You know, you, I'm not going to make my men do something that I'm not going to do. And I have all these little mantras that most, uh, a lot of them come from fantasy books. Stormlight Archives is one of them, where when you're in the suck, and any of the military folks out there who are listening, like they get this. When you're in the suck, you have to have something that you cling to to push forward, to, to put one foot in front of the other. Because sometimes that's all you have to do. You have to shrink your view back where you stand there and you go, well, I've got to count to 10 and I'm just going to put the next foot in front of me. I'm going to count to 10 again. I'm going to put the next foot in front of me. But the human spirit and the human will is so resilient. We give up on ourselves way too easily. And we need to push ourselves because you are the bridge leader of your own life. No one's coming to save you. No one's going to come make sure that you have make enough money and like you have to do it yourself and you have to take leadership for that. Absolutely. I look at my life and just the people that are in it. And this is going to sound like me elevating myself over them. And I don't mean it that way. But I know people. We come from the same gutter. And there were the same age, right? So we had the same amount of decades to change our lives, to kind of move forward beyond that. And I know, I'm i thinking of two people in particular. They're children. They're not men. They're little boys. They're petulant. They're angry. They're scattered, like, as far as their emotions go, as far as brain, scattered brains, as in the... They're all over the place, always hopping from one project or thing to the other, never finishing anything. And one of them, sadly, I don't know this anymore, but last time I talked to him, it seemed like it was still still like playing around and partying and doing drugs and living as an unhinged, not unhinged, an unbound like teenager who just realized, hey, well, you know, beer makes me feel kind of funny and I like it. And he's a he's a grown man doing this. One of them, at least, did have a difficult life. Had a horrible childhood, unstable, until later in his teens when there some stability came into, into his life. But I don't know. I don't know. Because I don't want to dismiss him outright, but there's just these little things that they continue to do and they can't get past certain events and they can't or they refuse to grow. Yeah, it's it's tough to watch. I uh, we all nobody gets to pick the cards they're handed. Period. Like that's that's equal across the board. You might be born high class, you might be born low class, you might be born with uh, a congenital disease, you might be born with terrible parents who are drug addict like you don't get to pick your cards. What you do get to pick is what you're going to do with your cards. Mm -hmm. And not every hand seems like a winning hand, but you certainly can choose to show up in a way that allows you to get ahead. But the biggest issue with that is choosing delayed gratification and choosing to go through the suck. If you've got a learning disability, and this is why I like David Goggins, his father was an abuser in the 70s and he uh, had a learning disability and then he got into his 20s where he had to move out of like his grandfather's house because they left his dad to just try to survive. And he just gets fat. 
and he's drinking four milkshakes a day, and he's teetering into nothingness, entirely comfortable, but also hates his life. He's looking for purpose, and he doesn't know what to do. He does third shift pest control. Like, the guy, if you look at two of his photos of, like, where he was then versus where he is now, like, just worlds apart. And then he's watching late night TV one time, and he sees this ad for the Navy SEALs, and he's like, I'm going to do freaking that. I want to do that. And he has a month and a half to lose, like, 140 pounds to pass basic training to get into the Air Force. He does it, barely, and then his story goes on, and he has other issues, but he, he overcomes them. And then he gets to try out for the Navy SEALs for the first time. And he gets halfway through Hell Week. Hell Week is this time where you, you pass this like advanced segment of a basic training for SEALs. And then Hell Week is they basically keep you up all week until you quit. And you ring the bell. And you've, you've chosen. You've decided that this is too hard and you're giving up. But they, they purposefully, if you think listening to someone talking about basic training is bad, SEAL training is hell and he has to drop out because he's running on broken legs and he can't do it like he's running on broken legs and so he tries out a second time same thing his legs get broken and he can't do it and he has to he has to bow out they only let you try for the SEALs three times and that's it so he tries out the third time and he he gets in but the listening to him during the audiobook talk about his experience saying no I'm not gonna I'm not gonna quit and then having to quit because his body physically will not let him overcome is gut-wrenching because the man has chosen to dig himself out of his circumstances his absolutely horrible really terrible circumstances of his father who beats all three of his family members wife and two sons in the 70s when it was like fine to do that sort of and like his learning disability, just all of these things he had to overcome, his heart issue, uh, where it like holes in his heart or whatever it was. Mm. And he, he chose to overcome it. And so I hear stories like that. I read stories like that. And I just, it's not that I don't have compassion for people who have issues in life because I, I was born with a, a congenital disease as well. That's why I have kidney stones. That's why I don't have a large intestine. Like I wasn't given everything. I got shit to deal with too like but you choose to look at your circumstances and say okay well how can i choose to win today how can i choose to be bridge leader today to show up and sometimes that means making your bed and sometimes that means doing the dishes funny you should say that but making the bed uh part i think it was a navy guy i heard speak at a graduation and he said something like that it all starts with making your bed and that's all i remember from the speech because it was a long time ago but how true it is, yeah. one of the first things I do when I wake up, I do what you normally do when you wake up, and then the second thing right after that is I make the bed. And it has made a whole a, a big difference, like in my life, the, that habit. It sets you, like a little thing that sets you up for the rest of the day. Then you know, after I make the bed, I grab a cup of coffee, I relax for a little bit, I take a shower, and between all these things, I walk the dogs, and right before I take a shower every day, I work out for at least half an hour. And that little bit of routine, that little bit of consistency has helped tremendously. It's huge. Yeah. And granted, the working out is a recent thing. 
It's only been about a month that I worked out every single day. But in my twenties, life. But in my twenties, so I, I ran every day, and you know worked out at a gym workout. Did that probably two or three times a, a week. Those habits kind of fell away, but they've come back now. But just the making the bed part. Well, let's just let's just say there how much difference it makes. And it seems silly. It seems stupid. I know, but consistently making your bed every day. Somehow, well, I don't know what it does to your endorphins or any other part of the brain that that needs it. For me, it just sets me up for the day. I feel good when I see I, I made it's a, bed. A quick dopamine hit that you've accomplished something. That's what I meant. Like Dopam- we, not endorphins, humans... dopamine. That's what I meant. No, yeah, yeah. I, well, there's there's like a variety of chemicals in your head, and they all do similar things. Like endorphins are this flush of chemicals to help you overcome pain. And they kind of meet you in this homeostasis to sort through pain, which is why like going to the gym promotes endorphins, right? Crossing stuff off a to-do list uh, is basically a dopamine hit for most people, which is why that bed making thing that you're talking about is such a popular speech to quote. Yeah, everyone gets the opportunity every day to be bridge leader in their own life. And it doesn't have to be with the Stormlight Archives. Pick your favorite book fictional character pick your movie person if it's aladdin you you were a street rat and now you're a prince whatever you got to do everyone has the opportunity to make a better life for themselves that doesn't mean everyone's going to be a millionaire but it does mean that you can make a whole lot for yourself more so than society tells you because society just runs with these negative narratives both in the news and on socials and it just beats people down and you have to you have to choose to cut that noise out Mm -hmm whether it's uninstalling that stuff or whatever, but you you get out there and you do you show up when no one else is showing up because that's your duty to yourself and to the people around you. And frankly, the people that are relying on you that you don't even think about. How What would it look like if you asked your question or if you asked yourself, what if every action I take today will affect my next 12 generations? Mm-hmm. Well said. What, you you well going to go said. out and party on the weekend again? Is that what you're going to do? Like, okay, play that out. You party every week until you're 45, 50. And that now is how you have set a foundation. You are setting a foundation for your future generations. Absolutely. Beautifully put. Very, very well put. This is this is how I look at life. I've got this master plan for my current trajectory in life to build something that's a lot bigger than myself because I think about the next 12 generations. Am I going to meet all of them? Yeah, probably not. I think I'll live a good 150 years and then move beyond the veil. But until then, today's actions dictate the foundation I'm going to build for the people around me and the people that are coming after me. One man I know said, live each day as if you have eternity to look back on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good line. This is why these books are so impactful for me. And I love getting other people to read them because... There's things about this sense of duty and honor that the society's lost, and it's hard to explain it without examples like Kaladin, like Dalinar, like Sadius, like I can't mention some of the other names because we haven't gotten there yet, but like these pe- these characters in these books because you're watching them live out these values, and these are values that I hold myself to. Do I do it perfectly every time? No. But you know what? I show up and I challenge myself. If I'm at the gym and I'm like taking it easy, if I really need to take it easy, I'll take it easy. 
But if I'm like taking it easy because I'm being lazy and I just kind of look at myself internally and go, are you proud of what you've done so far at the gym for the last 45 minutes? And you go, no. And you do another set because you know that you have more juice in the tank. So do it. Anyway, that's enough serious stuff. Any final thoughts from you? And then I want to bring us to like a, a more fun note that I missed earlier. I don't think so. Uh, the only thing that popped in my head as you were saying your last few sentences is it goes to show how well Sanderson can write characters because Siri, remember Siri? We're going to talk about Siri a lot. I remember Siri. Like, why did I resonate with her? Because mm -hmm. when you look at Caledon and Delinar, Siri, the way they're written, the emotions they feel when Caledon loses the fight with the boy and the boy puts his foot on the back of Caledon on Caledon's back and says, all right, we're done. You lost. Get over it. Just the, the feelings that Cal has. That defeat. Yeah. yeah. I don't care who you are. The way it's written, you can feel like you can at least empathize. And I know that word's overused, but you can at least empathize. You can feel what Caledon is feeling. So these characters, I think why you specifically respond well to them might be because you like fantasy and you like Sanderson and there's something about these books that are interesting solely to you as you, Jonathan, you find this interesting, but also because Sanderson does a, such a good job in writing characters and their either growth or their demise or bringing out how they feel in the moment, like whether it's desperation, defeat, or exaltation, or whatever they're feeling, trepidation, uncertainty, mm -hmm. like Shalon, she doesn't, she's a timid girl who doesn't know what to do exactly, but she has this singular goal that she thinks, well, if I don't know what to do in general, like my family's destitute right now, I don't know exactly what to do, but I think this will, uh, this will help. And just her journey there, you feel every step with her. You, you understand what she's going through. And I'm not a timid, yeah. I'm not a timid, you know, second daughter of a, of a minor or whatever she is. I think she's the only daughter. So I'm not the only yeah. daughter. So I'm not a timid daughter of a minor who's dead and whose family's uh, coming apart. I feel what Shalon is feeling. I can understand why she's, why she is not only so determined to do what she's doing, but like the feeling that she has of uncertainty and shame even at times. I'm there with her, right? In the trenches right, with Right. That's my final thought over what we just read in 12 through 17 and just mm -hmm. piggybacking a little bit of what you said. All right, we're, we're switching from serious to funny. So Wit is a fun character. I, I want to get like two two or three thoughts from you on Wit uh, in a second here and then we'll, we'll lay in this plane. But he's got this line from chapter 15. He's like, I point out, uh, I point out truths when I see them, bright Lord Sadius. Each man has his place. Mine is to make insults. Yours is to be in sluts. I just love it. I it la I laugh every time. And then shortly after that, it's it identifies that killing the king's wit was legal, but you forfeited your land and title. What a brilliant piece of world building. Yeah. You know, I love wit. Everything, uh, there's a couple of lines in there. He's testing uh, D Delner's son. And uh, Renarin. Renarin, yeah, and he says, "Say something, uh, something interesting." 
and he says it to another guy, and the other guy tr- attempts to say something interesting. He's like, "Ugh, I, I, I wasted my uh, energy on you." And turns to the Delner's son and says, "Say something interesting." And the guy goes, "Something interesting." <laughs> and the wit's like, "All right, well, well, well played. played, well, well played. played, young man." And there's uh... a couple of other lines which, since we're landing this plane, I'm not gonna look up. I thoroughly enjoyed. Wit's a good guy. I like him. I, I want a wit around fantastic. me. So I don't have to talk. It, right? I just want some, him to insult people around Oh, him. man. I can't tell you about what I'm thinking about, but uh, there are even better moments in the future with wit. And it's, oh, it gets spicy. It gets fun. It gets real fun. Anyway, that's this week's episode these episodes are going to run a little longer because we're trying to cover a lot. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed it. Next episode, we will cover chapters 18 through 27 in the Stormlight Archives, The Way of Kings. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear about what you're thinking in the comments. Are we just a couple of brambling wits? Just a couple of brambling fools? Or are we onto something? You tell us. Goodbye, good people. Goodbye.